0: We, we know of new methods of attack.
1: So we try not to do too many repeat the on the fifth column. The fifth column. But column, this episode column, column, column. is someone who's back for his third tour of duty at the fifth column because he's an old friend of mine and because I love his work. And I don't think there's anyone better at uh, storytelling than John Ronson. The British author, podcaster, filmmaker, renaissance man. uh, And he's got a new one. He has a new podcast that you can find on Audible called The Debutante," And a little background about that and a little background about this conversation, because it's a conversation. It's not an interview. I believe that I gave the same shtick and the preamble to our previous conversation about John's podcast, Things Fell Apart, which is also brilliant and you should go back and listen to, um, freely available online, in which I explained how this interview is not really an interview. And, you know, look, I've been interviewing people my entire adult life. I do it in that linear fashion that you're supposed to do it. it gets a bit circuitous at times, but these ones, I'm, I can't really interview friends primarily just because I want to have a normal conversation, and I want a conversation like I would have a conversation with John if we were at a bar. So that necessitates something from the listener, which is maybe to be a little familiar with the material. And so I'll give you a background on it, but I'm going to recommend something, is that you listen to that podcast before you listen to this. You could do it both ways. I'm pretty sure it works if you don't listen to the podcast before, and maybe it'll prod you and uh, provoke an interest to downloading The the Debutante, but this one will jump around a bit. But you should know the general story. The general story is quite simple. On April 19th, 1995, the anniversary of the Waco siege, a truck bomb went off in front of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. The man responsible for that was Timothy McVeigh, But there have been many theories over the years that perhaps McVeigh didn't act alone, and maybe he acted in concert with a group of neo-Nazis. Now, one of those neo-Nazis is a woman named Carol Howe, a rather attractive debutante, hence the name of the podcast, from a wealthy family in Oklahoma who joined a neo-Nazi organization and then mysteriously turned into a government informant who claims that if the government had listened to her, those 168 people would not have been murdered that day in April of 1995. And John asks the question, is it really the case that had she been listened to, the bombing might never have happened? And that is what John investigates in this podcast. Because it has long been a conspiracy theory— and a pretty plausible one for reasons you'll hear that Timothy McVeigh didn't act alone. This is a theory that's been floating around both left wing circles with Gore Vidal and right wing circles like uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, a uh, right wing columnist who did a lot of Clinton conspiracy stuff during the 90s. And that is the story that John tells in this podcast. And that's the one we talk about in our conversation. So, I really hope you enjoy it. And I really beseech you to go and listen to the podcast first. I think it'll be a more enjoyable experience if you do, but not a requirement, um, just a suggestion and enjoy my third conversation on the fifth column with the great John Ronson. I loved you as a writer for so long and now you're just a podcaster and it's like the voice is so necessary. Your voice because without Shane McGowan, it's just Irish music. It's not the Pogues, and this is something very <laughs> specific—the Ronson voice, which I love. Uh, I love so much.
2: It makes the podcast. I'm just saying. That's well, when you hear that that sound. Well, thank you. Um, I'm gonna. I am still gonna write. Though I'm gonna write books again. Uh, you, do you have one in contract now? Uh, yeah. I've actually got like three in contract. <laughs> I still got to write the is, Good things. lord. Um, yeah. I'm just
1: giving you advances and you're spending them on.
2: Well, not, I'm spending them on tax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally what I'm spending. Well, today's
1: tax day, by the way, that we're recording this. And uh, I filed for an extension when I saw the pornographic level of tax that I'm paying in New York slash, I mean, this is like being in Norway. I had the. Without (laughs) the services.
2: Uh, You know, when we moved to America, I had this crazy thought that maybe I still under the free and don't tread on me. Maybe I'll pay less tax. Yeah. Nope. No, no, no. It's not, you know,
1: 1960, I guess it would be 66 that Revolver came out and George Taxman, the most libertarian song ever. Right and what exile on Main Street? It's a e- tax exile was ninety percent right. for rich and no like write offs. It was just yeah. actually ninety percent. It's amazing that the Rolling Stones managed to make tax exile like, seem cool. Yeah, it was the title of the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Keith still lives in Connecticut, which by the way is a high tax state. He should maybe move to Florida or something. Right, but. Um, it's hard to talk about the, the things that you're, you're here for, the new podcast that you're here for, because we just spent probably 45 minutes talking about other things. But let's ease into the new podcast, which I found out about. I have to be honest about this. I do follow your work, but I found out on Instagram that you had a new podcast that is actually out now. It's not, yeah. you know, in the future, uh, called The Debutante. Yes. I saw the title of that and I said, what on earth is this about? (laughs) And then the word Nazi was in there somewhere. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I know I'm going to love this. Give a little background of, I know it's a story you've been interested in a long time, Mm -hmm. of just what the
2: general idea of this story is. Okay. Well, when I was reporting on Nazis in the 90s, (laughs) (laughs) I kept on hearing about this woman called Carol Howe. Mm -hmm. And she was a very mysterious woman to begin with because she was a Tulsa debutante high society yeah. who somehow ended up hanging out with Nazis mm-hmm. in that backwards training camp so that was immediately um, it's a character yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know because most of the people you meet you know are clan compounds and yeah. so on or, you know working class and here was this glamorous yeah. debutante attractive, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was interesting and mysterious in mm. itself and then the second mystery was that she had this information that she was trying to tell the world and the information was that there were more people involved in the Oklahoma City bombing than than, than the world thinks. Yeah. It, Timothy McVeigh wasn't a lone wolf, as mm-hmm. everybody thought. He was intimately connected to this uh, weird place called Elohim City, this eccentric Christian identity church in the middle of nowhere in the Arkansas, Ozark Mountains. Mm -hmm. And because she had been a Nazi, but then she became an undercover informant and she was spying on people at this eccentric place, Elohim City. Or maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of maybes in the story. Yeah. So If it was that straightforward, you wouldn't have gotten a podcast. Right. Right. Yeah. But. The, but, you know, a few years ago, I went on Joe Rogan and he said to me something like, you know, you're such a skeptic. Is there any conspiracy theory that you think might be true? And I said, yeah, I think there's, it's possible that this yeah. uh, Elohim City conspiracy theory yeah. is true. That with, a, with Rogan, you have to say, is there any conspiracy theory that you don't think, don't think is true? Because
1: <laughs> I saw him on with uh, Michael Shermer who is the editor of Skeptic Magazine, who was like, you know, uh, Oswald killed Kennedy. And it just, I had to turn it off. It was just descended into, no, 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 what about the bullet, this, that, and the other? But so this was a conspiracy theory, and it was a conspiracy theory. When I found out you were doing this, I wrote you back and mentioned Ambrose Evans Pritchard. Yes. Who is a British uh, journalist, who I believe now is actually still the Telegraph. Maybe he's a Brussels correspondent. Yeah. But he was a DC correspondent. And was very deep in the weeds on Clinton conspiracy theories, but he wrote a book, and the first hundred pages of that book are actually pretty well reported and interesting about LOM City and about the Oklahoma City bombing mm. and what was famously called John Doe Number no. 2, somebody who was supposedly spotted with Timothy McVeigh, mm. olive-skinned man, um, Picking up the rider truck that would ultimately be the car bomb mm. that blew up the a Federal Building and killed what 168 people. 168 people. Yeah, yeah, many children too. Yeah. So, so y- this has been rattling around in your head for a little bit. Why now? Is there new information that, or was it kind of the? You know what I'm going to do here. I'm going to start backwards. You know why? Uh, because I want to tell people about this. I want you to go and you go. It's this is Audible. Um, product go get it now go listen to it okay it's six episodes won't take you long because you'll listen to one and you'll listen to all at the same you'll binge it and then come back and listen this because we'll talk about some of the stuff that is in that but let's start backwards because you say at the end of this podcast one of the most interesting parts of this and i rewound it trying to parse where you were coming from in this at the end of this you say you know it's interesting to do this story now in the light of charlottesville January 6th, but, you know, maybe everything isn't what it seems in all of these kind of ideas now about the Nazi threat in America, the fas- fascism is on our doorstep. Hmm. What was it about this moment
2: that you said, this is actually relevant now, but maybe not in the way that you think? Right. Well, it's exactly what you said. It's complicated. I hope I'm going like, to be able to say all of this without, I am i too much because it's, you know, I, I managed to take... One of the most complicated stories I... I've ever done and yeah. tell it in a really simple In a very um, uncomplicated way Yeah, uncomplicated say, yeah. way but what a fucking nightmare it was to uh, Really? to do that Yeah, I, I mean my my main job in the last three years since I <laughs> went back to the debutant was to figure out what's the easiest way to, of telling a story because if yeah. I can't tell the story easily no one's going to listen Yeah It's just, it's too many Well, you succeeded I have to say Well, yeah. thank you but believe me that it wasn't easy Yeah So I'm going to try and do the same thing Yeah, now, sure, yeah. But, but it's not easy So, um, there really are clues that seem to link Timothy McVeigh to this place, Elohim City. Yes. Uh, one is that he really did telephone Elohim City immediately before or after he read, he made the phone call to the Ryder Truck place. Very so
1: very close to the bombing.
2: Yeah. So right when he was really definitely planning the bombing, he phoned Elohim City. Yeah. And asked to speak to a mysterious man called Andy the German. Yes. And <laughs> Andy Strassmeyer. <laughs> Who do uh, you speak to in this yeah. podcast? Yeah. So that really did happen. He yeah. really got a traffic violation very close to yeah, city, yeah yeah which is in the middle of nowhere yes but you spend some time on how close which is
1: interesting too yeah. and i won't go into detail i don't want to ruin it for people but yeah. yeah i mean that that is an interesting thing too you know how close is all this
2: yeah way, you know? plus nbc at the time back in the late 90s went to a you know strip club yes called lady godiva yes and met a whole load of um, you know strippers there and bar staff and bouncers who all said you know yeah uh, Timothy McVeigh might have been in here with this mysterious German, Andy the German, Andy Strassmeyer. So there's all these plausible clues that link McVeigh to uh, to Elohim City. But as a constant. Consequence- and Elohim
1: City, just to be clear about this, is middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, Arkansas border. And it is. Packed to the gills, not a lot of people, but packed to the gills for a small town, of Nazis, mm. Christian identity movement people. There's Some a murderers. Named, yeah, murderers. A guy named Millar, I guess, who was the, the grand old man of this place. Yeah. And a lot of Nazi tattoos and mysterious Germans and people who talk about blowing up federal buildings. They yes. talk about, um, what was the, um, the, uh, the portmanteau that they use? Uh, Rahoa racial holy war
2: right
1: and that's you know they were trying to you know foment a racial holy war five guys in the middle of of oklahoma the rest of us were just waiting for them right but when timothy mcveigh who you know was selling the turner diaries the neo-nazi book written by william pierce Mm. at you know gun show i mean this guy is a white supremacist clearly
2: yeah and he denied that later, but it's clearly... It's there. really hard. I mean, he said, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I like the Turner Diaries for the uh, anti-government, anti-government stuff, yeah. not yeah. the anti-Semitism yeah. and, and yeah. racism. Yeah. But, oh, my God. <laughs> like, if you read the
0: Turner Diaries... You can't
2: really separate them. Yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. It's, it's, it's porn. It's yeah. violent porn. It's violent porn.
1: Yeah, and, and there's plenty of people who I would say are of the... Um, anarchist variety who find other books to read that yeah. are you know full of racist imagery. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and to cut. down not only everything I just said, but yeah. in the middle of this was this former Tulsa debutant turned white supremacist spokeswoman turned undercover federal informant who how, said she had met him. Right? Yeah. Who said? Well, her stories about it's changed, they yeah. changed significantly yeah. over the years. But but yeah, was saying, you know, I. Kept a diary for the ATF when I was undercover at Elohim City, um, where they were, you know, Andy the German and Dennis Mahan were talking about bombing federal buildings, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And if they'd only listened to me, maybe the Oklahoma City bombing would, would never have happened. Yeah. Now, the reason why all this is kind of relevant. So for- that's, the, that's the idea, right? Yeah. Is that
1: the feds turned a blind eye to this uh, in a malicious way or just they were, it's just bureaucracy. Or they were covering for somebody. What is the idea that why the feds, particularly when people on the far right at the time, think that the ATF and Janet Reno are are just all spying on them all the time? I mean, the other argument is that, oh, they they kind of had the the plan for this and they just ignored it. Or is it kind of like the memo that landed on Bush's desk in August of 2001 that says bin Laden determined to strike homeland?
2: Well, depending on, you know, yeah. there's different levels to it. Like, yeah. depending on the kind of stripe of conspiracy theorist you are, you'll believe something, you know, subtly different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, I'm going to circle back to your question about why now. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's important to sort of sure, look at this. Yeah. So, I guess, you know, one version is that Andy, the German, Andy Strassmeier, it turns out that he comes from a Political family. His father worked for Helmut Kohl and was involved in reunifying East and West Germany. Mm -hmm. And what was this guy, you know, whose father, you know, doing at Elohim City? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, and I guess this is probably the most prevalent theory maybe Carol Hal wasn't the only undercover informant at Elohim City. Maybe Andy the German was also, he got close to McVeigh and for some reason he failed to stop the bombing from from happening mm-hmm. and that's why the cover up he was allowed to leave america without him being interrogated it's so 911 because
1: i mean you remember after 911 the idea was that uh, members of the bin laden family were allowed to leave on government planes saudi government planes um rather than being questioned by by the by the fbi and the and Right, so That's been a, a, a big part of the conspiracy theories is that, you know, the Bush family close to, you know, Bandar, Prince Bandar, and they all left the next day. And this is in your, in your um, story, too, is that, you know, Andy the German, this mysterious German guy who has kind of interesting connections in his family, which he obviously plays down, uh, leaves, just kind of disappears. And yeah. especially in a country where being a Nazi can really... Land you in
2: prison for, for right, and he's not, and he hasn't been. So all of these things are yeah. kind of interesting and mysterious yes. and strange. Now, the reason why this all relates to like why now and Charlottesville yes. and January the sixth is because a lot of people, mainstream journalists, yeah. you know, like like NBC, but also a lot of academics on on the left mm-hmm. and kind of historians and like important, yes, you know, anti-white power people on the left, sure, all say that what this means, like the bigger story is that everybody thinks that Timothy McVeigh was a lone wolf, but his connections to Elohim City and Andy Strassman and Carol Howe and all of that stuff proves that, no, the white power movement is much more unified and dangerous than we thought. And just look at Charlottesville, just look at January the 6th. Mm -hmm. They're a unified, dangerous thing, and we need to proactively stop them Mm -hmm. um, to to prevent a civil war. Mm -hmm. Let's not be dupes here. They're unified and they're plotting against us. And if we had only raided Elohim City, if we'd only done like an armed raid on Elohim City. Oh my God, what a terrible idea that would have I mean, be. A ter- for me, I think it's a terrible idea because the place- I, Post-Waco. Yeah, this This is what inspires
1: McVeigh. Right. And by the way, McVeigh was at Waco. Mm. His, you know, there's, I think, a photograph of him there. His car was there. He was probably selling the Turner Diaries there.
2: Yeah, he gave an interview to a local yes, journalist. Yes, that's right, that's right. A that's right. journalist. And yeah, Ruby there. Ridge, Um,
1: which, you know, there are two things. By the way, PBS did a fantastic documentary about Ruby Ridge. It was absolutely f- stunning. Okay. It was about two years ago, American Experience, I think, and a fair documentary because it doesn't get, you know, caught up in the detail that is important but I think derails a lot of people to, to when they're looking at whether or not the government did the right thing, is that Randy Weaver is a Nazi, he's a scumbag yeah. and a fascist, uh, and his wife was shot in the face
2: and killed, and his child. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, they, I did a documentary on Rich as well. Oh shit, that's right. That's yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, so I've met Randy Weaver. I mean, it's a long time ago. Yeah, who died like, recently? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also met and became very fond of his daughter, Rachel Weaver. She's
1: kind of normal right is that right yeah,
2: yeah. I mean I, I found her just normal and, yeah. and delightful and I, and I have very happy memories of like hanging yeah. out in Idaho and Montana with her and going up to Ruby Ridgemore. but
1: he was a neo-nazi wasn't he
2: well he, he was- used to go to that compound yeah, he's got to Aryan Nation which is William Pierce's thing in Idaho, right? Um actually not William Pierce, uh, Richard Butler. Oh, Richard Butler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean not the, the singer of the psychedelic furs by the way, but <laughs> but the Nazi one. Okay. I mean he was definitely less yeah. crazy than some of the other people he was hanging out with, which is part of the reason why the government wanted him to become an undercover yes, informant yeah, and yeah. Spy on Aryan Nations yeah. when he said no, fuck off yeah. and then they surrounded and blah 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 and then everyone gets killed. But anyway, so um so for, for, for the modern white power observers, yeah. the Carol Howe, Timothy McVeigh, Elohim City story is evidence that the white power movement is much more dangerous and unified than, than we think. And it's evidence that we have to proactively stop them to yeah. stop the civil war. Kind of so, an odd argument, even if it were true that Timothy McVeigh was connected to Elohim City, Elohim City is not very big. I mean, there'd be about four or five other people that would be involved in this plot, I'd imagine, right? Yeah, and I think, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think of, like, the, say, 200 people who lived at Elohim City. I think, like, 15 of them were, like... Young men of killing age. Yes, of killing Nazi age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Most of the people there were yeah. children, women, or old men. Lots of visitors. The day I went to visit Elohim City in the nineties, there was a detergent salesman there. Yes. And a chiropractor yes. called Dr. Buzz. And the detergent you know, so you know Audio that's in the other it's, it's in the podcast too. <laughs> right. So if the feds had turned up, like, you know, Malar would have, you know, they would have shot back. It would have been yeah. another Waco, or, or almost certainly. Yeah. So I, it's I, a very specific time
1: in American history that people forget and if there's people of a certain age who cared about politics at the time you would remember mm. the phrase headshots do
2: you know what I'm talking about mm.
1: do you know who I'm remembering there
2: L- not Lon this. no
1: G. Or... Gordon Liddy oh okay uh, the water gate burglar had a radio show and he got in a huge amount of hot water that said if the feds come to your house they'll be wearing plates they'll be wearing body armor so shoot them in the head headshot wow on the radio. Yeah. And that was the crossing, that kind of inflection point between crazy, you know, uh, conspiracy uh, survivalists and like mainstream conservatives. And I want to give a, a friend of mine um, a lot of credit. Jesse Walker uh, from Reason Magazine has done a lot, uh, written a lot about the kind of general perception of the militia movement in the 90s and where, there, where people were, were, were quite off about it. Um, and where some of it was just kind of, you know, dumb, banal stuff of people running around the forest in fatigues pretending to be soldiers. But, but that was, I, I just, people should remember that the Waco, Ruby Ridge stuff in a certain segment of the population, the newsletter
2: segment, people that get Ron Paul's newsletter, right. it was a big deal. It was a big, big deal. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting because obviously, you know, Waco, the Branch Davidians, they were multicultural. Yes, you know, they hey, were. Jim Jones. Yeah, yeah, they they weren't part of the White Power movement yet. They got you know after the siege, uh, I guess Waco was everything that the that the right was fearing. Yes, they're gonna. Smash down our doors and take our guns away. And yeah. that's exactly what happened at Waco when yeah. everyone died. So you can understand why it became such a huge thing. But now it's funny, you know, at the time in the 90s, I, I, when I made my Ruby Ridge documentary, and it's all in my book, Them, and I talked about Waco, yeah. it was kind of obvious that Waco, and it was that documentary, Waco Rules, Rules of, of engagement, engagement,
1: which won an Academy Award.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that was yeah. all like, Waco was a disaster. Yeah. Let's not repeat yeah. this disaster. Early on. Yeah. It was yeah. Not a, the conspiracy theory is interesting
1: because. What people don't remember about this is that it won an Academy Award. This, like, it was a video cassette, you could see it in like college towns and the weird video stores had it, uh-huh. but it's pretty
2: mainstream in the sense that it won an Oscar, yeah. And know? people generally accepted yeah. that its message was right, which is yeah. that you know, whether or not it's kind of immaterial whether or not the government you know set the fire out of it, yeah. That's think. always the big, the yeah. big yeah, yeah. But, but but you know, so even if you don't believe that, and I've got no idea whether I presume yeah, it's yeah. not true, but um. Even you know, even if you disregard all of that, Waco was a disaster, and the lesson from Waco is like, don't do more Wacos. Yeah. But these days, that doesn't seem to be the lesson from Waco anymore. There is somebody in in the documentary and the in the podcast who
1: says, you know, we should have gone into Elm City, and maybe there would be 168 people alive. You push back in that and say, well, I mean, who knows the dead the the death toll. Number one from raiding Elm City, and also number two, we don't even know if it was actually connected to. Abs- yeah, to, to
2: yeah, so it's a very yeah. weird thing to, uh, in my opinion, to wish had happened. Well, to me, it kind of gets to the roots, you know. So, so the debutante starts, I think, yeah. with some really fun, funny stuff about, you know, yeah. Carol Howe and, her, and the series of <laughs> terrible life choices that she made. And her first husband, who is what a character. Her first husband, Greg, is one of the best, int- in 35 years, it's one of the best interviews I think I've ever done. Wh- why? Why do you say that? Just because he's so, he's such a raconteur. Yeah. He's just, he's so funny. Do- I doesn't, I
1: mean, there is a, I actually sent you back a bit of audio from the podcast, because I sent it to a bunch of people, it made me laugh so hard, and I'll, I'll, I think I'll probably just put it in right here. but it. Uh, it's the guy saying, you know, you said God, do you know, getting a swastika tattoo, what a terrible decision. He's like, yeah, that was really dumb of me. That's not, it's like, you know,
2: I shouldn't have parked in front of the hydrant and I got towed. Right. You have a Nazi tattoo. And he's like, yeah, that was really stupid of me. I'll tell you what's very I don't put this in the documentary, um, but... I was really pleased because Greg, you know, her, her, her first husband, who's never given an interview before. I said yeah. to him, he said, we've never asked you about Carol before. And he said, no, only the FBI. Yes, so I did yeah, like, the only yeah. interview with, Carol that's, with Carol's first husband that's ever been done. And he's so funny. I mean, I could have... Yeah. I could have played that interview just raw for hours. It's yeah. just great. But um uh I'm I'm covering because I forgot where Did I was. you suspect that he was uh, a Nazi, that he still believed that stuff? Well, okay, good. You've you've brought me yeah. back to my thought process, yeah. <laughs> which is that later because obviously he's telling me all of this stuff about how yeah. Cowell was leading their yeah, 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 racism yeah. and so on. Now, this isn't incontrovertible proof, but right at the end of the process, like three years later, I found the FBI report. The, where the guy really interviewed Greg. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was working at like Subway or Taco mm-hmm. Bell. Or, and, and, and the story that Greg told the FBI at the time is kind of identical to the story that he, is that he told right? me. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I thought that reflects, it doesn't mean he was telling sure, the truth, sure, but, it, yeah. but it certainly makes it more likely that he was telling yeah, the truth yeah. to, to the FBI and then to me years later. For instance, one of the great things about Carol, the Carol's origin story... And the reason why she became a Nazi is because she always said, and she said this in court, and she said this yeah. on Diane Sawyer. She said that she was in the park in Tulsa and she was set upon by black people, by a gang of black people who threw her off a roof. Yes. And she broke both of her feet. Yes. And that's why she became a Nazi. Um, (laughs) Good Lord. At Greg's point... Is this not true? Yeah, Greg was there with her. Yeah. And he said, that's not true. What really happened was that they were like getting drunk and there was an Easter monument and they were like messing around on this Easter monument, like climbing, you know, the Catholic scenery and so on. And some kids, white kids, by the way, um, were jumping off this Easter monument as a dare so Cowell was like, oh, I want to do that. So she jumps off the Easter monument, lands on her heels, and smashes both of her heels. And, you know, that's how she ended up on crutches. So her origin story she told was 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 a lie. And when you think about it, of course that's the case. If you're gonna get thrown off a roof yeah. by a gang of people, you're not gonna land right on your feet, are you? Yeah. Uh, so um And there's no police report, there's none of that stuff. No, yeah. nothing. Yeah. But but so
1: you know, it's interesting because I have, I have advised all of you listening to go listen to the podcast before, because it's better. I think it's better if you listen to it first. Uh, it's better also because John gets some money for it. Um,
2: but uh, Actually, I don't. Because,
1: it, it, uh, you know, the I don't want to go straight through this because it's, it's, it's less interesting that way. But one of the things I want to stop you on, because you've done so much reporting on this, and it mystifies everybody. It mystifies people that have been studying it for years. When you look at somebody like Carol Howe, who comes from privilege— whose parents were, could pay for the best lawyer in Tulsa when she got in trouble. And, and in, yeah, in fact, did. Uh,
2: and in fact, did. And he's now representing Stormy Daniels. Yes.
1: Yeah, that was a nice little detail at the end. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of thing, you, you t- it's what happened again, to make a 9-11 compar- comparison, when we discovered that all the hijackers were like PhDs. We always thought they're going to be somebody living in squalor in like Yemen or something. And this is somebody who has a lot. Why is it, if that origin story is false, that somebody who has a lot and has a pretty gilded kind of life and a pretty easy path in front of them chooses to live in trailers
2: Mm -hmm. with you know barely literate Nazis and got a swastika, huge swastika, huge swastika tattooed on her arm and so on? Yeah, well, she said, like when Diane Sawyer asked her that question, she said it's because she was adopted, yeah. you know, lots of adopted people yeah, don't want
1: Nazis. Of <laughs> so, Non-Nazi adopted friends. <laughs> yeah.
2: So there's clearly other stuff yeah. that she wasn't yeah. unpacking. Yeah. She wanted, She said she, she was adopted, so she was trying to find a place in the world, and she wanted to feel superior to other people. Yes. So that's weird. Like, that's I don't, very weird. I don't yeah. want to feel superior to other I'd people. never, know. No.
1: Yeah, you know, I want to stop feeling inferior, which I've been doing for a long time, but not superior. <laughs> yeah. Just like on the same level,
2: <laughs> right? So, so there's something in psychologically interesting there about her. This kind of need to feel superior. Did that come from yeah. Tulsa? I tell you what. Where, where I think it didn't come from uh, was her her debutante life. Yeah. Unexpectedly, the, the the woman who ran the debutante committee, Dixie Repi. Is a is a liberal, she's a Democrat. People yeah. think, Oh, Tulsa debutante it's gonna be really racist. Yeah. But, but actually, well certainly the woman who ran the committee wasn't wasn't a racist.
1: And was she involved in the debutante world? Because it doesn't seem very clear that you
2: was. Yeah, not that much. I guess not it's a little much, bit yeah. of a cheat that I call the show The Debutante. Yeah,
1: but that's what everyone refers to her
2: as. Yeah, The Nazi Debutante. Yeah, The Nazi Debutante. That first came from Mark Potok from the Southern oh, Policy yeah. Law Center. He he <laughs> yeah. gave her the title The Nazi Debutante. Yeah. Because from nowhere, here's the thing. So so after Greg, um, um, as I say, the first few episodes of the show are just me tracing the Cowell's, Nazi debutante. Yeah, yeah. Cow's biography. Yeah. And it's so funny and so strange because after Greg, she starts dating the craziest Nazi in America, a guy called Dennis Mahan. Yes. Um, who yes. Uh, And and he thinks, she wants to like, you know, shoot and plant bombs. And Dennis is like, you know, no, 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 I've got a really good thing here. Like, yeah. you know, you're beautiful, you're eloquent. I, Be I, yeah, I can get you on Oprah. yeah. You know? He never managed yes. to get on Oprah, but he did get a he got a recording. Some dial a racist messages. That is hilarious. That
1: you have to explain to people. There's like there's an actual phone number called Dial a Racist.
2: Right. So before, they're not pretending. No. Before the internet. Yes. If you, it's you know, well, in the sort of pre digital world. Yeah. So Dennis Mayhan set up uh, this thing called Dial a Racist, where yeah. you phone a particular number. And you like just listen to the outgoing message. And the outgoing yeah. message was Dennis Mahan saying something racist. And so she, like, falls in love with the voice of Dennis Mahan, where he's, like, going, you know, the international corporations and the Jews control yeah, yeah, America they yeah. have to destroy the white race. And she's, like, lying in bed recuperating from her... Yeah, her, from her, from her, her illnesses. Yeah, isn't?
1: her leap from... But is, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because when he says, and I, I thought about this when I heard that, you debutante, beautiful Nazi can be our spokesman. You can, I can get you on Oprah. It's funny when I was thinking about that, I was like, oh my God, that was the era where a lot of people knew who Tom Metzger was mm. because Tom Metzger was on TV a lot. And it shows you, and I get in a way the academics who are like, no, this is a huge conspiracy and this is a big thing, we should take it seriously. I can kind of understand them in a way that at the time and I actually think probably TV was right about this, was that they were so silly and they were so powerless and so dumb Mm. that they were on TV all the time. No one thought twice about it. They didn't think like, oh, we're what we now call platforming. They were not platforming these serious people they were
2: putting on wrestling villains. Absolutely. Wrestling is exactly the word I was going to use. When you you watch Jerry Springer, uh, exactly like being inspired by these crazy Nazis throwing chairs at each other. It's like being inspired by, you know, one of those Jerry Singer stories about, you know, the the, the guy who has three wives and they all scream at each other. Yeah.
1: I mean, they had, I remember that, I think it was Jerry Springer had Gigi Allen on (laughs) and there's certain people uh, who know who Gigi Allen is. And if you don't, don't Google him. Uh, It wasn't, it was this, here's some crazy people in America. Mm.
2: this is a circus and here are some of the circus freaks of America yeah absolutely so that was the world that Carol entered into with Dennis Mahan and and so on her parents still alive by the way uh, her father's still alive did you try to contact him you know I didn't because we were really holding out for her for her and and her lawyer, Clark Brewster, was was really like, you know, oh, it's looking good. It's yeah. looking good. Yeah. And and then right at the end, it was like, no. Um, but the office opened. I actually ended the final episode with an offer to Carol to so come to on and do an, an extra, extra episode. episode. So my, my fingers are still yeah. crossed. Yeah, you know, and it's funny that,
1: that uh, periodically um, uh, works because uh, a, um, a friend of ours, a friend of this podcast uh, who did a podcast on – Uh, The 1994 Republican Revolution, Steve Kornacki from MSNBC. Steve's a brilliant guy. And it was all about Newt Gingrich. And he said, you know what? No way. MSNBC? You want to talk to me about 94 and the Clinton, you know, the anti-Clinton revolution? Steve Kornacki is one of the most brilliant, fair journalists I've ever met in my life. I don't know what he believes about anything. Gingrich contacted him. He said, "This is great. I'm really impressed by the work that you've done." They tacked on an extra episode, and it's really good. It's just him talking to Gingrich, and Gingrich is like, "You know, thank you for doing the journalistic spade work." And I'm going to give you a a kind of straight interview, and they did. It was very good.
2: Well, I hope that.
1: Yeah, maybe that'll happen. Maybe that'll happen. So, Carol is, you know, gets into this Nazi world, and at some point. As you would say in, the, in in England, you turn super grass, you turn state's evidence. Yeah. When does she become and why does she become an informant?
2: Well, she said that Dennis uh, sexually assaulted her mm-hmm. after. Uh, this is such an epic, extraordinary story, but it yeah. takes place over such a small amount of time. Yeah. Like she join, she breaks her feet. At easter easter 94 <laughs> so bizarre, yeah. because uh, she's like climbing all over an easter monument yeah 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 so it's like april 94 she breaks her feet by the end of april she's dating dennis Mahan. yeah by aug so then she becomes like a nazi spokeswoman and you know is noticed by people like mark potock because mm-hmm. she never goes on oprah but she's on german tv talking yes. about how you know we've got a Pick up our weapons and eliminate the Jews. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, by August, uh, Dennis has assaulted her. I mean, Dennis is not, uh, he is, he's an extraordinary. I'm usually, it's kind of, pretty clear that he's an insane person. Yeah. yeah I'm usually yeah. pretty good, I think, at figuring out what particular mental illness or mental disorder somebody has yeah but with dennis mayhan he has such a confluence of bizarre things. Yeah. So it's really hard to figure out he's
1: a narcissist he's violent he's everything under the sun and he's also in prison now right?
2: yeah he's in prison for 40 years yeah uh, yeah which is the best him. place for him yeah
1: um, but his brother is not
2: no his brother's yeah. not i met his brother at um at a diner in tulsa and let me stop and do these things. This is the hardest thing about interviewing you because there's too much that I want to ask you.
1: And that's why I, again, advise people to listen to the podcast first because it's easier to follow along. But let me ask you something that people ask me all the time because I've been in very similar, very many similar situations. Um, you're Jewish. Mm. You don't make any secrets of that. No. You can Google you and probably find that pretty quickly particularly if you're a Nazi and you're trying to find these things out. Is this guy from the Jewish media? And you go and meet these people. What is the feeling that one has when doing this as far as, like, safety? Is this a smart—because you've done it for so long. At this point, are you just like, you know what? These are fucking losers, and I'm not scared of this anymore.
2: Well, look—well, I wasn't scared meeting Daniel Mahan and his friend Steve— from yeah. white Aryan resistance. Huh? Huh? <laughs> See, I'm sorry, I'm a little scared of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <part laughs> which is the acronym of war, but okay, yeah. But it's 25 years later now, yeah, they're, yeah. Old. Yeah. they're old. Yeah. They're old. They're fat Aryan resistance. Yeah, yeah. they're fat, old yeah, Aryan yeah. resistance. Yeah. So so the chance of the, so, you know, I, I worked out, you know, my risk assessment, yeah. I worked out that, and they're, not, they're too old to fucking, they can't yeah. even pick up a chair and throw it at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so I didn't feel in danger that, but, but back in the day, like I went to Aryan Nations back in the day when I was doing my Randy Weaver um, story, and that was scary. All these young skinheads surrounded me. Yeah, they're they're angry, amped up, yeah, young skinheads, and I presume they know you're Jewish. Yeah, they all surrounded me. I could see them all like looking at me. Yeah, and then they surrounded me and said, "What's your What's your genealogy?" They said. Oh wow! They used the word genealogy. Is, is
1: that the academic,
2: the the quasi academic way of saying are you Jewish? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I said, "I'm Church of England." uh yeah wow yeah it's a bit of a <laughs> and this guy i'll never found this is one of the oddest little moments yeah so these skinheads were like gearing up to fucking hurt me this was one of the rare occasions where i Thought, okay, I am in actual physical yeah. danger here. I had a cameraman with me, David Barkham. David's like a great cameraman. He filmed like all of the Troubles. Yeah. You see him like in documentaries at the, during the Troubles, like yeah, running, running away. Running in Belfast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and he, but he's a brilliant, brilliant cameraman. I made like 20 documentaries with him. But yeah. the one thing he was really shit at was getting cutaways. Oh, and I used yeah. to like really complain to him like I was in the edit. Like I got nothing to fucking Yeah, I got from. nothing to cut to, Yeah. <laughs> At Aryan Nations, he got so many cutaways. And yeah. I'm not like going to I think we should leave now. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm just yeah. going
1: to get some more cutaways. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I have so many camera people that just like, yeah. you know, don't. They have, they don't. You know, by the way, all, all the camera guys and women, too, this is actually true of them, too, they're all surfers. There's just like this, there's a camera person culture and they all kind of look like Dennis Wilson uh, before he falls off the boat, you know, the long, the long hair and like beard, very 70s. Mm. And they are wonderfully, they're, they're unbelievable at finding everything that's going, but they're also completely clueless of what's going on. Mm. And there's people threatening you and they're like, no, let me just get one more. I'm going to get, and I'm just like, can we get the fuck out
2: of here? Yeah. Please? Well, in that's that, exactly yeah. what was happening to me at Nation. Nations. Yeah. Right? I was in genuine danger. You were saved by a lack of technology. No, because was... if was- it was now people could mm-hmm. Google you and be like, no, no, he's not Church of England, he's a Jew. Right. Well, that yeah. presumably saved me. But the other thing that saved me, and this has always been like, a mysterious moment in my life. So this guy comes over just oh. as these skinheads uh, are. Uh, and I think he was like head of security at Area yeah. Nations. Area Nations was already on its last legs because the Southern Poverty Law Center had sued, sued them. Sued them, yeah. Yeah. And they were about to close down. Yeah. They had nothing to lose. And these yeah. are like genuine, violent, dangerous people. This guy comes over. Uh, just as I'm saying no, no, I'm not Jewish I'm Church of England Yeah. and makes a joke about like oh, you're the ones who blah, blah, blah oh, some yeah. joke that alleviated the situation and the skinheads walk, walked away and to this day I don't know whether this guy was an actual Nazi or if he was a or if he was an undercover a, yeah. person, an agent or informant yeah. but either way this guy saved my skin in that Do you
1: know, do you have a do you have a, a footage of him in any way? Do no,
2: have, no, there's no There's no cutaway of him? No, nope, no cutaway <laughs> of him although a lot of cutaways of Nazi flags. and Yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of banners and flags and things. David like. really surpassed himself with cutaways <laughs> that day. Uh, that, because, uh, I mean, it is what you do, and
1: specifically the stuff that you cover, um, it's, it's stuff that makes people very angry. And that's the interesting thing about you, is that, you know, I think that everybody who knows you, and even people who listen to your stuff, uh, think of you as a very gentle person, mm. you know, a very kind of broad-minded and gentle person. The porn documentary uh, um, Butterfly Effect that you did made people apoplectic mm. in the porn industry. Some not some, loved it. And mm. this kind of stuff um, will make people very angry. I'm sure people that are involved in this story. And they're also, also often not people you want to make angry. Um, the Alex Jones types, the conspiracy theorists, the neo-Nazis, the white separatists, etc. Y- you're a bit... <laughs> You have a bit of a death wish in that sense. You don't mind when people hate you, do you? Because oh, I do. I No, I do. Why do you do this then? Because you, you really, yeah. you're gentle with people, but you can't walk away reading or listening to the stuff that you do without realizing somebody was just burned by you. Um, do you know what I mean? I, I totally understand what you mean. I don't mean burned like in a nasty way, but just yeah. like you got the better of
2: them and they can't like how this interview plays. You know, when I'm back home... Well it's that's it's always the child and you've you know you yeah. you've experienced this well certainly with your Jonah story, <laughs> you know, you you have to weigh up yeah. like the, the, the personal feelings of the interviewee yeah. versus the integrity of the story sure. versus the thing that you're putting out into the world, so yeah. you're putting it out to an audience. There's all these different like components mm. and you just you're sitting there and, and you just have to in the most you know, ethical way you possibly can weigh up these things and yeah. try and bring out the thing that's the fairest thing. Because I hate it. Like I hate it when people like you, yeah. if people are upset by what I what I yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know I really you know don't like it. But but I've got to tell a story that's got as much integrity as possible, and if that means you know, you know, showing aside to one of the interviewees that they wouldn't necessarily want you to show. Yeah. You just have to weigh it up. And yeah. and I don't know what, you know, sometimes I'd always remember something that you said to me, it's in So You've Been Publicly Shamed. You said, have you ever been in a position that if you're going to press send on a story, you know it's going to ruin someone's life? Yeah, have you yeah, ever been in that yeah. position? And I sort of thought about it and I thought like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but you said probably
1: or drastically alter it in some
2: way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You said don't do it. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever been in a position like you were with Joan Alera. Yeah. But but I've certainly have to, have to make those kinds of choices. And I was him. right in the sense that he did
1: get a book contract later um and just never came back. He's never I mean yeah. he came back to Twitter when he has a new book and then just it's disappeared again. And God knows what he's doing. And as I've told you in the past, I've you know had some times that I've e- emailed and had brief communication. Say you know we've never met. Maybe we should mm. should do that. But I think at this point, when seeing how um, impactful, shall we say, <laughs> that was on his life, that maybe it's probably best to steer clear of it. Yeah. But you know, I think the thing that is interesting about interviews, and we got a question from a, a listener who said that they were. Um, doing a library series and they were, you know, just starting interviewing and some interesting authors were coming and they didn't know how to do it and said, you know, what, what would you recommend for interviews? And this doesn't speak to that because that's in front of people at a library. But one of the things that I always thought people would be appalled by and they shouldn't be is if they heard the raw audio, everything of an interview, they would probably be surprised because what you do as an interviewer It's not Piers Morgan. Mm. It's not you go in there and like, you know, just start chastising them and you get in this back and forth. The entire purpose is to make people feel comfortable, to find the points of interest, even with a Nazi.
0: Mm.
1: I'm interested in, you know, what happened on D-Day. Have you ever seen The Longest Day? Have you ever seen this? Whatever it might be. And you get them talking and there's all the techniques that you can do. But the people that hear that, you're like, oh my God, editors. and This is a bad guy. And you guys are like, liking each other. I'm like, not really. You should never be judged on the raw material. Never be judged by the raw because it's, I never am dishonest. Never. I never tell them I believe something I don't believe, but I find the thing that maybe we both believe in, or maybe we're both interested in and talk about that. And it's a very disarming technique. After a while, yeah. they're like, oh yeah. And then, you know, you, before the camera goes on, you're like, you spent, you know,
2: five hours talking about collecting the Hummel figurines or something. You say it's a technique, and I know people do use it as a technique. um, But it's actually honest with me. I actually am interested. Yeah, and it's honest with me, too. Like, for me, it's not a technique. I go into a situation with totally— It works as a technique, but it's not—I think I'm similar to you. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. It does work as a technique, but it's not a technique. Some people—Tuma Capote would use it as a technique. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then he'd lie about what what you said. (laughs) There's a famous story about Tuma Capote was, like, talking to Marlon Brando, about, you know, all of his boyfriends and Marlon Brando wanted to, like, say something nice. So he said, yeah, yeah, I had, had sex with a man once or, some, or something yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. And True Capote, like, does a story like, you know, Marlon Brando had sex with a man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've probably yeah. got yeah. that slightly yeah. wrong. But, um, but yeah, for me, it's never a technique. I go into a situation genuinely curious, interested, you know, wanting to, wanting to learn, wanting to empathise, yeah. wanting to connect with somebody on a human level. But then when I'm back at home with all the material, you have to make it work as a story with, with integrity. Can I
1: ask you a question about this story about an interview? Uh-huh. And again, probably the seventh time I've said this. Listen to this first because this will make a lot more sense. Uh, but I'll give a little preamble to make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. As um, John mentioned, there was a guy at Elm City called Andy the German, uh, Andreas uh, um, who, by the way, his brother um, is the head of the refugee, agent, refugee agency in Berlin right now. Oh, i for, that. for for immigrants and you know. Um, mostly Afghan Syrians, etc., Iraqis, and yeah. his, his brothers, the head of the Berlin, which is amazing. Yeah, how did you know that? I looked it up and found it in Dezide or something like that. But it's a really, this is the thing, I get. I find stories by listening to other people's and going through these really insane rabbit holes. But you talk to Andres Strassmeyer, you had interviewed him in the past, and Strassmeyer is interesting. And the reason he's so interesting is that you have a very educated German, um, who claims that his, you know, grandfather was a founder of the Nazi party. I don't believe that to be true, by the way. Um, and his father's in the CDU in Helmut Kohl's government. Um, he might be, according to a lot of people, John Do- Doe number 2, the man spotted at the at the um, truck rental place with Timothy McVeigh. He does look a little bit like him. He does sketch. look a little bit like him. He claims yes. he doesn't look anything like him. So you surprised me that you actually interviewed him in maybe the fifth uh, episode. Yeah. Sixth. Sixth episode. Mm. Uh, You save that to the end. Let me ask you a question about that because you don't include much of it. There's not a lot of him in there. There's very relevant bits. It's very fascinating. How long did that interview go on? And was he like truculent? Was he difficult? He said he wanted to be involved in this story because he didn't want anyone saying that Carol Howe, the debutante, was a hero. Yeah. And, but he doesn't really speak to himself in the interview that we get in the final documentary. Did you ask him about this? There is one bit we you ask him about, you know, you know, are you, are you John Doe number two? Uh, is he a Nazi? Like, I, it's so confusing mm-hmm. who this person is. And I know that's deliberate in a way because we don't know. But what was that interview like? And what did you get out of him that you felt like, okay. I misunderstood this guy, or maybe there's something about Andreas Strassmeier that we don't really know, or is he just a stupid Nazi? that has gone back to Germany.
2: Well, I mean, he's... It's very said, complicated, very hard to understand. Yeah. Well, as you said, he's, he's very intelligent. Very. He seemed very clever. Yeah. Um, I interviewed him for probably like an hour and a half. Yeah. He was grumpy because he had a cold. Cold, yeah. <laughs> and he had to walk through a mall at Christmas to get to the studio. So <laughs> when he sat down, he was like very grumpy. Yeah. Uh, he denied um, ever being a Nazi, Weirdly. He 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 said he was like a sort of anti-government activist. And, yeah, you know. Also denies obviously being an informant or working for the government, and uh, uh he, Which he hasn't always done, by the way. Oh, okay. Oh, actually, with uh, with
1: Elvis oh, Prichard, he said he, he refers to somebody who is a government um, informant or um, right. a man who introduced him to some of these. Um, was trying to get him a job who was a member of the yeah, military. Yeah, and he which, says, you make with that what you will, implying that he was a government informant.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Well, he said that to me too. Yeah. I can't remember if I included this in the show. So so after he was in the army in Germany, he was sick of being told like what to do. So he decided mm-hmm. to go to America. And he went to America because a friend of his father's had promised him a job at the DEA because this friend of his father's... he they give those to random children of foreigners. <laughs> well, basically, he thought, this guy thought he was going to become the head of the DEA. And when he did, he would give Andy Strasmeyer a job in the DEA. So Andy Strasmeyer went to Germany with that um, promise. Yeah, But then this guy, this is Strasmeyer's story, this guy never got the job with the DEA. Yeah. So Straussbauer was like stuck in America with no work permit and no job at the DEA. So he becomes like a logger. And then somebody tells him about Elohim city. So he goes to Elohim city and moves in. Like your normal
1: person finds out at Elwin city, Elwin city and says, I want to go there and right. hang out with the Nazis.
2: I mean, Strasmeyer, unless he was like the best, something doesn't make sense about it. Um, you know, there's one reason why, and I say this in the show, there's one reason why I think he probably is likely to have been a Nazi mm-hmm. is because when I met him 30 <laughs> years ago, yeah, yeah. and this is such a crazy story. Can I tell you? Yeah, this yeah, story? yeah, please, yeah. please. So 30 years ago, I tried to do this story, yeah. and we wrote to like every address we could find for Andy Strassmeyer, and he never got back to us. And then I was coming out of the gym in Islington, I remember this so clearly, and mm-hmm. I get a phone call, and it's this woman called Margot from the north of England. And she, she says, my name's Margot. I'm a mother of four in this tiny little town in the you know countryside in the north of England. Uh, I'm phoning on behalf of Andy Strassmeyer. And I'm like, how, you know, yes. how did that happen? <laughs> uh, more details, please. <laughs> yeah. So she said that she was like a stuck-at-home mother... By then, these conspiracy theories about the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, were beginning to like rumble. It's 99 around there. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little earlier, maybe yeah. 98. But there's the internet at this point. Yeah. 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 And just because she was bored and stuck at home with nothing to do, she starts yeah. writing to Andy Strassmeyer. And he says to her, uh, OK, there's these uh, British people who want to come and interview me. Why don't you... Check them out. Check them out. So that's why she phoned me. So I'm like now traveling to Frankfurt with Margot. I'm thinking, so, this is yeah. so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. But did you suspect she was a Nazi or something? No, like I suspect, well, I suspected she was a Nazi and I also suspected she was maybe an undercover agent. Yeah. So I said to her, like I remember like in the shuttle bus from the airport, I said, how do I know that you aren't an undercover agent? And she said, how do I know you aren't? That's exactly what an undercover agent would say. (laughs) Right. So we get to Frankfurt and I'm interviewing Strassmeyer 30 years ago in his hotel room in Frankfurt. And later on the way back to England, Margot says to me, oh, something really funny happened when you left the room. Uh, Strassmeyer said to me, "Um, I can't believe that you brought along a Jew to interview me. So 30 years later... I tell Strassmeyer that story. And his response is interesting. Yeah, his response is interesting. He's embarrassed. He's embarrassed. Yeah. And he's like, oh, Ron. Yeah, yeah, Like everybody calls me Ron. Yeah. Oh, Ron, uh, you know, I'm not, I didn't feel that way about you. I
1: That can't be. Maybe I was making a joke or
2: something. Yeah. Yeah, 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 So
1: I think he, so... I mean, you're still making a Jew joke. So
2: that's also a, you know, a tick against you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as if that's some bulletproof defense. Right? right. But I'm thinking like it's obvious that, you know, Strassma, there's pictures of him in front of like Confederate flags and yeah. everybody, at everyone at Elohim City, you know, this woman, Rachel at Elohim City, who I interviewed for the debutante is like, you know, he's constantly trying to get people interested in white supremacy. And, yeah. Um, it's possible he was an undercover agent. That's not. I'm not saying that's not possible. Yeah. But I do think that if he was an undercover agent, he's only pretending yeah. to be anti-Semitic. He was doing a good job at keeping it up. That yeah. like years later in Frankfurt, he's like saying, "Yeah, to Margo. I mean,
1: one would expect that they would. He would say that yes, I was undercover in maybe." save his family the embarrassment and his, you know, because it's clear that his actual family was embarrassed by yeah. by him, his father, his brother, both in politics in Germany. So Strasma's
2: yeah. so position now is that none of the stories about him are true. It's not true that he was a white supremacist. It's not true that he was an undercover agent. He was just a guy who was hanging out at Elohim City because, you know, uh, they let anyone in and he was at a loss for things to do now that he wasn't going to get a job at the DEA. That's just Meyer's story.
1: And, I mean, everyone has a story about how what is in front of your nose isn't actually true. Yeah, I mean, Carol Howe says, I was doing all of this, you know, kind of fomenting these attacks uh, to, to try to catch people up in the net Mm. Of this kind of DEA sting that I am personally running, yeah, but not telling ATF the DEA, sting. ATF. Sorry, yeah. um, ATF sting that I'm kind of running but not telling anybody at the ATF
2: about. Yes. Yeah. This was Carl's defense in court. And I know we're telling this sort of strange story. Um, yeah, it's sort of out of order and strange story. This is well, why I'm hoping over. that people... Every, every people, people yeah. listen to this. Well, I'm but, hoping yeah. that people will listen to yeah. it and understand. Yeah. yeah, she had what I consider to be quite a spurious defense, but it's a defense that worked. It got her yeah. off her charge of bomb making. Yeah. And, you know, making threats, which was that she was exactly what you said. She was... Uh, Only pretending because she was still working for the ATF, even though she hadn't handed in any intelligence for the last 18 months and hadn't spoken to the ATF. And
1: in this intelligence, does she ever say, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who's, you know, the kind of hapless co-conspirator,
2: are planning on blowing up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City? No, she doesn't even get close to that. Later on, years later, she would change her story.
1: And say that she had told the ATF that something was
2: up. Yeah, and say that she saw Timothy McVeigh with Andy Strassmeyer at Elohim City and they were walking and talking. And this has affected people's memories because some people who, like me, has read Cowell's Elohim City diary now misremember and say, oh, yeah, no, she was saying that Timothy McVeigh was there. And she was reporting that to the ATF before the Oklahoma City bombing. But... That's not true. Like mm-hmm. my research is pretty concrete on that. Like that's not true. And to also point
1: out that McVeigh, who was executed executed in two thousand one, yeah. I, I remember, but um, he always denied that there was anybody else involved and said he was a lone wolf. And I, the, the excuses that the conspiracy theorists make for this is that he wanted to take all the credit.
2: Yeah, he didn't want to be the Lee Harvey Oswald, the patsy
1: who got caught. It's It seems ludicrous to me that you would maybe cop a plea or something or, you know, I'm going to go to my death um, saying that it was just me when it wasn't just me. And he said, I mean, he said, he, the interesting thing about McVeigh is that, you know, it gives you kind of, you know, makes your skin crawl to actually say this but he's not a dumb guy either he's mm. a, quite a clever guy um clever people can be very evil people <laughs> um and uh just ask Corvadal, uh who fell for it uh with uh, McVeigh but um Absolutely. really fell for it with Gore with, Vidal was a believer in anti-stress mountain yes Mayer, he was and, he was a believer in a lot of conspiracy theories at the end uh Hitchens always said that um his brain turned to mush and wrote a piece uh, for Vanity Fair about you know Vidal being I mean Vidal basically said that he uh, he was a,
2: a heroic boy basically yeah. this is what he's, he's talking about McVeigh in fact funnily enough Gore Vidal I met Gore Vidal shortly before he died and I brought this very thing up with yeah, him yeah yeah I met him backstage at the Hay and My Festival yeah. and I said oh I've met Dennis Mahan and Andy Strassman. and I wanted to have like a big conversation because by then I just didn't I didn't believe that Mahan and Strassman, especially not Mayhan, because mm-hmm. Mahan is Crazy. There's no yeah. way that a government agency would bring no. Mahan in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and um, um anyway, so but Vidal didn't want to have a conversation with me about it. Uh, and he actually thought that Dennis Mahan was probably more involved than Andy strassmeyer was. Yeah, he was a he was quite a conspiracy theorist about this. But you know, it's interesting when one of the interviews
1: that which I find one of the most interesting interviews that McVeigh gave and by the way, this is from memory, so this is probably 10 years ago that I read this. Um, there was a time after 9-11 in which, you know, there are people, mostly on the right, that were saying that there's something preternaturally terroristic about Islam. It's a religion of war. And people would always shoot back, what about Timothy McVeigh? And McVeigh responded to this prior to being put to death. And he said, people say that I'm a Christian. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God, which I thought was really interesting. And it makes you say, well, what do we know about this guy? Because again, we had talked about this before we started recording the narrative journalism, which is, which is sometimes subconscious about McVeigh, who claimed that he wasn't a racist, which I don't believe for a second, because there is a pile of evidence, even beyond um, him selling the Turner diaries of people saying that he used to use racial slurs all the time um, in the army and the rest of it. But that thing that we all knew back in the day that he was like a Christian terrorist because maybe it was the LOM City connection or the idea of that. Uh, but he says, no, I'm I'm not. I'm not. And he also says, no, I did this by myself. Yeah. Ter- I mean, But he did talk about Terry, Terry Nichols.
2: Uh, yeah, he says he's strong-armed Terry Nichols. Yeah, and, and I think he probably did. I think yeah. Terry Nichols kind of got a bit of a bad rap. Like- did you try to talk to him? Uh, he was in prison yeah he's in prison actually no i didn't because i thought this isn't really a show about it's not about it's a show about cow how yeah yeah Uh, so i didn't talk to uh to terry nichols but um he's again psychologically like but he's a really interesting yeah character he he um he said that you know his biographer dan herbeck said to him what about all the Secretaries, and you know, you killed a lot of people who had nothing to do with the. So 80s. The Buffalo
1: yeah. News, yeah, wrote that book. Yeah. yeah, American Terrorist, I think it's called.
2: Yeah, which I think it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite good. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. Um, so Dan Herbeck said to him, "What about all the the secretaries who died in the building?" Mm-hmm. And McVeigh's answer was so strange and chilling. He said, "Well, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and when the Death Star got blown up, there was a lot of admin stuff on the Death Star." But everybody in the cinema audience applauds, uh, and they don't care about the admin staff and the secretaries on the Death Star.
0: That film. was his answer.
1: Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah, because it's
2: it's a film. And
1: what he also said as his motivation in the interview that he gives with Ed Bradley in sixty Minutes, and I just rewatched this the other day,
0: yeah.
1: he talks about um, they're trying to get him off at this point. And you do a very good thing about, about his uh, lawyer, uh, who's... A conspiracy theorist. <laughs> a conspiracy theorist. And he's saying, no, no, no. And he's like, but but you need, if you want to get off, you got to follow my conspiracy theories on this. But, um, so he's not, it, it, one of the conditions of the 60 Minutes interview is don't ask him, are you, did you bomb the Murrah Federal Building? You can't do that because we're in the middle of this appeal. But he does say, and I believe it's in that interview, that it was the images of children, or the idea of the children being choking on CS gas and then being burned alive in Waco. Mm. And then those children don't matter anymore. When, he, when he's asked by the, by the biographers, what about the children in the Murrah Federal building? Because there was a daycare.
2: Yeah, uh, I think that's because like, they fucked up. Like He didn't yeah. know there was a daycare. No, he didn't. And um, He did bomb during the day though. Yeah. He could have done it at night. People yeah. said, even in the like extremist movement, said he maybe should have done it at night. Yeah. Yeah. And not only during the day, but like at nine AM when people yes. at the worst possible yes. time. But I think Um To which, by the way, he said if there were no casualties, there'd be less of a response. Right. So he was defending the casualties. Yeah. Um Yeah. He he uh so I think the thing is, what's interesting about McVeigh is I don't think necessarily, like, look, I don't want to be an armchair yeah, psychologist yeah, yeah, here, yeah. but there isn't really evidence that McVeigh was a psychopath. He he no. didn't display any psychopathic characteristics when he was a kid, you know, and most of the time, if you're like a, enough of a psychopath to want to blow up a building in Oklahoma City, you're going to be torturing animals when yes. you're 10, 11, 12 years yeah. old. Uh, he didn't do that. There's no evidence of any of that. He, he what he really That's cared crazy. about... Yeah. was civility and good manners. yeah, He was obsessed so with civility. It's bizarre, right? I yeah. Mean. So what a strange... But it feels like, the, in a psychopathic way, the fact that there was a daycare in that building and all of those children got killed was his mistake. Yes. And he didn't want to think that he made mistakes. That he made a mistake. So there was some cognitive dissonance going on there. Do, when you listen, and, and you know, you just said this and it's obviously
1: correct, <laughs> it's your podcast, that this is not about Oklahoma City. But this is looming in the background because mm-hmm. this is, you know, the, the kind of set piece yeah. here is that Carol Howe, the debutante,
2: and could she have prevented yeah. this tragedy? But I think ultimately, like, so the first half yeah. of the podcast, I think, is a really Fun yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny. There's yeah. a lo- yeah, yeah. Um, and then what it becomes, I think, is the kind of stuff that you talk about all the time on the fifth column, mm-hmm. and Katie Herzog and Jesse Single talk about Unblocked and Reported and so on. And it's about what kind of journalists do we want to be? Yeah.
1: Um,
2: you know, the old fashioned liberal journalism of evidence gathering and it and, pla- you know, um, this whole not pl- no platforming thing is, yeah. doesn't really factor into what we do. And yeah. and it's just about trying to tell. Imagine your career if you couldn't platform people. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be living ta- under, a, under a fucking yeah. bridge. <laughs> you know, I was talking. I, don't, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. Uh, but I was talking to my friend John Safran, the Australian yeah. journalist who does very similar stuff to what me sure, and Louis yeah. Theroux do, but, but in Australia. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I met him the other day and he was, he was passing through New York and he said like, he said, have you noticed how like we, you know, me and you and Louie, we kind of get a bit of a free pass when it comes to yes. platforming. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I've noticed that. Like, yeah. why do you think that is? Yeah. And he said, he said, I think we've been like grandfathered, grandfathered in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah you are like the 18 year olds who can still drink when the age turns to 21. Yeah. There's a little, it, it, it is interesting that way because yeah. you know, this is, I mean, you're Career, I mentioned this today actually because I was on uh, with Matt and Camille. I was on Megyn Kelly's show, and I said, you know, like I did this right before you. Now, granted, I'm not Megyn Kelly, and I did not get hired for seventy million dollars by NBC. But I interviewed Alex Jones and went to his... Mm. I think we were the first people to film, actually, inside his, like, you know, compound. Art center. Yeah, yeah, his command center with his, you know, dick pills and the separate... He wouldn't let me in that facility, by the way. We, we couldn't film in there. Where and, they actually make the dick pills. Well, they're, I think they're just stored. I wasn't allowed in, but I think there's... You know, because they have that big, big uh, business. I mean, that's yeah. where all the money came from. And no one cared. People thought it was an interesting piece. And it was before Trump won. I think that's part of it, too. And then when Megyn Kelly did the same thing, it was it was like I cannot believe you platformed this person. You're a monster, mm. and that ended up happening to me internally once um, when I did a Bannon interview, and that was like you're platforming these people. But it's very I mean, I mean, isn't that such a weird concept to you? Yeah, I just I, don't understand. I try to get my head around. Right. I do try to like. I hate a lot of this nonsense, and I yell about it on the fifth column, but I do honestly try to understand where the people are coming from and maybe, okay, I see where you I just disagree with you.
2: This one I just don't see. Yeah. I can't. I just can't. It's what we do. Yeah, and obviously you have to do it with, with you care, know. Care, yeah. yeah. You have to do it with care. Yeah. Um, and some people, I guess, don't do it with care, so maybe that's the difference. But um, But is it because people think that if you allow people to say nasty things that
1: the American people, the British people, whoever, that you're listening, reading public, are so stupid that they might believe them.
2: You know, I'll tell you what, though. It's probably unwise for me to say this. um, It's been my entire career. (laughs) But one argument for no platforming might be yeah. that when i did my you know i was one of the first mainstream people probably the first mainstream person to do alex Jones. yeah <laughs> like me and alex snuck into <laughs> beaming grove together and it was yeah. a big story for both of us yeah I, yeah and i have no regrets at all yeah. I mean, it's, it was you know remains one of the best stories i ever did so. yeah for sure but um but that guy paul joseph watson the British guy yeah. who works for him. Yeah, he yeah. says he became an Alex Jones fan. Yeah. after watching my my story with that brain is going to find something. It doesn't <laughs> well, need you. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, because you can't watch that documentary and, and be like, "I want to be part of it." I want to be part yeah, of it. That. Yeah, that's that's the, you're getting the wrong message <laughs> yeah. from this.
1: Is that no? And that is yeah. I mean, the, 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 there's so much of this out there. I, I mean, remember, was it the same time, or is it before, or is it after? that Alex Jones was an animated character in, in Scanner Darkly. Yeah,
2: and in and Waking Life as well. In Waking Life, both of those, because he was kind of an Austin oddball. Yeah. Keep yeah. Austin weird, right? Totally. When I first met Alex Jones, that's that's what he was. He was yeah. famous in Austin hipster circles, yeah. and pretty hardcore, like, militia, Randy Weaver-type circles, yeah. and kind of unknown ev- everywhere else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but anyway, so that's the platform thing. But also, I think the, sh- I think the debutante, becomes a story about what kind of journalists do we want to be? Do we want to be journalists that are led by ideology and yeah. activism? Or do we want to be journalists who care a lot about, you know, evidence gathering That's and true. weighing things up? And, mm-hmm. and so the second half of The debutante, I think, is... is, is it's weighing like, things up. Yeah, it's about weighing things up. Yeah, And it's about how weighing things up... It's is slightly less you know, activist ideological journalism is more popular than it used to be. Yeah and our kind of old oh, liberal oh, journalism yeah. is less popular than it used it's, to be. Yeah, it's very much so. Yeah. And I'd say ultimately the debutante is 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 a show about that. Mm-hmm. It's a show about how our our It's not framed that way, probably in the promotional material. No, it's not, but it's kind of what I sort of care about the second half of the show.
1: When did that happen?
2: When did you start caring
1: about that? Um because it, it hasn't always been like this.
2: It's a fairly recent development, I would say. Yeah. When did I first kind of know? I mean, there's
1: always been people who reported from a political perspective— If they were writing for Counterpunch, you know, if he's on the left or,
2: you know, I don't know, David Horowitz on the right. It's always existed, but I don't know if
1: it's people news or what, but something, it's become more common.
2: And I should say, I've done it. I've done activist journalism and I'm not, yeah, I'd say so. I I did a piece called Who Killed Richard Cullen that nobody cared about. It was about the credit card industry and it was very much a sort of... Activist Tum story, yeah, tough thing story about you know how we shouldn't tolerate the <laughs> yes, secret yeah. tricks that yeah. the credit card industry do to yeah. enslave us. Yeah, so I have done stories like that, yeah. and I'm not. And, and also, I should say, I don't want to eradicate. You know, I'm not against activist journalism. Oh, sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. what I'm against. Incredibly useful sometimes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I like it as a as a fan, and I, and I learn stuff from like quote unquote woke journalists. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not so stuck in the mud that yeah. you know. I'm not like some people who are like us, who, yeah. who just want to kind of eschew all of that. But it's thing. not an ideology thing. I mean, it, it's you are a, a
1: guardianista. You've been considered, I would assume, a man of the left for your entire life. Yeah. I don't. I think you probably still are. I wouldn't. I doubt that for a second. I mean, I'm definitely leaning to. The yeah, left. you're definitely leaning to the left. But I mean, I don't think this is about you know, politics, it's more a generational thing and it's boring to say because it's a tedious, boring thing to say. But it's certainly true that everybody that I, I mean, look at the New York Times, the pushback against the stuff of like, you know, there was this protest of the trans coverage and there was an internal pushback. All of these people that signed and said, hey, no, that's, you, what was the the age of these people? Mm-hmm. So I did something, to, I said something uh, to listeners, which I thought was really I thought this might be interesting, and it turned out it was. Uh, Camille Foster, my pal and uh, co-host, signed that Harper's letter about free speech, you know, along with Salman Rushdie, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, you know, all over the map. The response was furious and angry. And there was a counter letter that was like, you are obviously white supremacist, you know, Salman Rushdie. And uh, I said something on the show, um, and someone took me up on it. I said, G- "Go! This is open source. You can find all this stuff." Give me the average age of the signers of both of them. It was like a twenty-year difference. Yeah. It was it's, it was like thirty and like fifty-eight. It was astonishing. It was a generational thing, a straight-up generational thing that was way
2: beyond and had nothing to do with ideology. Yeah, it, yeah, you. Are, it's very generational. And as I say, like I'm entirely in favor of what they do. The, the only thing that kind of concerns me is that I think that sometimes they. Don't want us to do our sort of journalism. Yes, I, I yeah. think all, there's room for both of us. There's yeah. room for that's that's exactly the point. There's yeah. room for it all. Yeah, and um, I don't want to stop them, but I don't want them to stop me. When you think of, because um, you bring this up at the end of the show,
1: the kind of journalism that we see that in a in a you know ideological way, and you can punt on this question if you want. But what is it that you see now? Um, I've talked a lot in the podcast about the. I think, overuse and misuse of the word fascism, which I take very seriously. And, you know, you can say authoritarian instincts, all that actually applies to Trump, I think. In, from your perspective, when people are saying we're on the precipice of this, or we're seeing a large network of white supremacists, you know, people that if they got the chance would line you up against the wall. Yeah, Right for the Guardian, you're Jewish, all this stuff. Where do you see that going
2: kind of overboard? Well, okay, I... Um, or don't you? I don't want to put words... No, in. no, no, yeah. I, I think that... And in fact, I think I'm going to touch on this in the next season of Things Fell Apart, my BBC show, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this stuff. Which I, I think was one of the best things you've ever done. Oh, but it was so good. Thanks. It was so good. And, and I told you at the time, there was the only podcast I've ever listened to that actually made me cry at one point. Oh, so wow. anyway... <laughs> I, and the second season's going well too, so yeah. that's lucky. Um, I think the phrase... So there's this whole argument that, you know, we're on the cusp of civil war. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this argument comes from this uh, CIA task force yeah. called the I can't remember what it's called now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like the Civil War Task yes. Force. Yeah. Um I you know, I I I I, th- I think that okay this is what i think and i'm gonna, and I'm gonna give a, both sides yes, answer, yeah, yeah. this isn't um, both sides isn't yeah i'm gonna do a bit of both sides here. <laughs> i think the white power movement probably is more unified than people think this cold you know lone wolf thing uh i think it is and in fact it's Proven by things like the Turner Diaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, these these leaderless resistant cells, cells yeah. didn't have leaders, but they were all reading the Turner Diaries and the Turner Diaries was like a manual for for starting a race war and Timothy McVeigh was clearly inspired by the Turner Diaries to blow up yeah. that building the Oklahoma City so I'd say there is more unity uh, and by the way leaderless cells is actually not what people think is in the sense that it means that there's no
1: central there, that's the opposite it actually means that it is a unified movement but you do it in cells like the Bader-Meinhof did so when you get caught you can't rat people out
2: yeah it's, you're all in the same movement right. <laughs> right. yeah so, so there is a unity so I think yeah. the kind of left you know who are saying that are, are right to an extent yeah. But I also think that the phrase white supremacist is overused. Is overused. Yeah. And I'd say that some of the people who are being labeled dangerous white supremacists are just, you know, young kids who want to join gun clubs. Yeah. And uh, do you think that you think that um, because of your reporting experiences? Because I think that I have
1: a totally different perspective on this stuff just from hanging out with those people. I never want to. But I always find it interesting and I always find them so much
2: less intimidating up close.
1: Is there a bit of that in it? Or, or yeah, am I, yeah.
2: Am I the only one who thinks that? No, I think this is from personal experience. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, reporting and digging and, yeah. you know, evidence gathering. And I think some of the people who are labeled that way are, are being unfairly labeled that way. And I think, you know, some, you know, little club of, you know, you know, militia kids somewhere. Uh, uh, well, you know, there's hundreds of Militias in Michigan, I think. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. most most of them, you know, the vast, vast majority of them are just, uh, you know, they're, they're gun clubs. And... I,
1: I was in the woods with a, um, a militia in Georgia. And uh, it was a comic experience for, for a lot of reasons. And it was the, whatever, the 5%ers or whatever the hell they are called. Right. And um, we're standing there in this camp. And a car drives up and a kid gets up. And he's probably 22, 23. Um, and he's black. No one knows who he is. And he walks up and he's like, hey, you know, I'm the one who emailed you. I'm here to hang out. And, you know, and I was like, "God, oh, this is very strange. You know, sort of, you know, well put together, well dressed. And so it turned. I talked to him. It turns out he went to Northwestern. He was currently a student at Northwestern. Not an easy school to get into. Not a cheap school. His father um, also black, not biracial, but it dropped him off. And it, they were like, oh, great, come on. And then they got really frustrated with him because he was not very good with his weapon. And that was the thing. They were like, no, 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 put the barrel down because he was like putting it up and all this stuff. And you could have, if you wanted to, as a journalist, read that of like the black kid comes in and this is a white supremacist movement. And they're like, I mean, these guys are bad for a million reasons, but they didn't hate black
2: people. Right. As far as I could tell, that's I exactly. Mean, I've said that yeah. very phrase. I said, "There's, you know, about the." And I don't want you to go back to the story. Yeah, 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 but I said yeah. that very phrase, I have said, "Look, there's a whole load of reasons to not like these." Yeah, people. there's a lot. Yeah, yeah and that, our piece showed it. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that they that they're racist.
1: Yeah, they they have a. I mean, if there's. A Yeah, because that's the race war people are separate than the government, right. well, yeah, well, government is, which is kind of what McVeigh says. Yeah, well, it's, it's, fundamental,
2: fundamental, but it's fundamental to the theory that civil war is imminent because yeah. it because the people who believe that civil war is imminent mm-hmm. uh, say that it always happens on race grounds. So it always mm-hmm. happens on tribal grounds. Yeah. So every time a civil war starts in another country... It's for like tribal reasons, so so civil war is imminent in America, and it has to be because they're white supremacists. So it's almost like a kind of mathematical equation that yeah. they're doing there, which I don't think yeah holds up necessarily in America. Yeah, I mean it was it was when we were filming
1: this, it, it started pouring, and these guys are you know survivalists, and they're like, let's go to this guy's house because it's raining too hard. <laughs> I was like, mm, okay, so we ended up going, and um, we were in their uh, garage uh, drinking moonshine. Like literally just doing shots of moonshine. This guy walks in, the black kid had gone home and I had an interesting conversation. It was a nice guy, but I, I don't think he went back after that. My producer checked. And this guy walks in, um, and this is in Georgia, looking kind of exhausted and speaking with a very heavy accent. And I'm looking at this guy, he's Honduran and he's driven all the way from New York because he, he's like, you know, people in Honduras want to play war too and they loved this guy and they'd gone out with him before and it was good a lot of good old boys and no confederate flags but i don't think i think it was just the georgia flag which has the old georgia flag which does have a confederate flag in the top left corner but not an actual confederate flag and the don't tread on me and stuff like that but it it was just like you know it's cosplaying and and there are serious people and it only takes one but The movement thing, and this is the right and the left guilty of this, with Marjorie Taylor Greene saying national divorce, which is a kind of Cold War, a a code word for civil war. But, no, it's interesting to hear you say that because the white supremacy thing is that I don't understand what you call actual white supremacists now. Well, Super white supremacists, I guess.
2: Well, it's concept creep, right? Yeah, concept Um, creep. Yeah, Yeah. and, and yeah. It's funny, when it came out, you know, I'm making a show about a white supremacist. I was wondering whether some people on the right would be like, "Oh, you know, he's he's yeah. he's another one." But no, these really, yeah, <laughs> you know, this, yeah. Is, this is dictionary. This is like old school. White yeah,
1: stuff. it's like old school. We have Nazi tattoos, yeah. and things like that. But you know, the one of the things in this piece in the in this podcast, they all have psychological problems in some way, mm-hmm. which is why when it doesn't seem obvious that they do, like Timothy McVeigh, um, or pointing out that. I mean, why do you point out that Andreas Strassmeyer is smart? Because the, all the islands are so dumb. Yeah. Like it's just kind of a misfit island,
2: isn't it, most yeah. of you think? That makes it actually, um, after the Oklahoma bomb, yeah. uh, two days after the bombing, Carol Howe was, was taken into FBI headquarters in Oklahoma, uh, you know, to see if she had like any information about the bombing. And she said and this was like her immediate story after the bombing. She said that she thought she'd seen McVeigh. In a photograph, in a in a photo album at a Klan rally that she went to, so that was her like a you know that was her story after, immediately after the event, but she said that she looked at the sketch of John Doe too, and thought it looked like a guy. I didn't name him for legal reasons, but yeah. thought it looked like a guy at Elohim City. I called him Scott, yeah. and so I went back to Cowell's Elohim City diary to see what she'd written about Scott. And because she did a little paragraph About mm-hmm. everybody at Ellen mm-hmm. City What she said about Scott was A jerk People don't like him Slow <laughs> i <laughs> so just really yeah. made me laugh that she was the guy who yeah who, he was the guy who she
1: was yeah, she, as yeah, john doe. yeah the slow guy i don't like maybe as john doe number two yeah. that diary is that that's not for anybody to see is it no i actually you got it yeah i yeah. didn't
2: realize how rare it was until the very end like i managed to get it but i actually had just assumed it was there for anyone to see but it's not yeah. it was actually me getting hold of that diary was a really big scoop which i didn't even realize it was a scoop you get a, a couple of really big like the got, tapes.
1: The, the oh, somebody. I got
2: great scoops.
1: This is a lot of a lot of luck, a lot of hard work, a lot of different stuff come together.
2: Yeah, this, right? and I should and I want to give credit to my producer at the time who was on it for like before the pandemic, yeah. uh, Miles Miles Bryan, and he did a brilliant job at getting that kind of stuff. Um, there was a um, we got this phone call one time we were in Tulsa from somebody from the public defender's office. And he said he wanted to meet us in a bar after work because he had something to give mm-hmm. us. And so we turned up at this bar at 6 p.m. And he had Cloak a, and Dagger. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was wondering whether he wanted to do an interview, but he didn't want to do an interview. And, you know, we didn't want to name him or anything, but he gave us a box. And inside the box were all these cassettes. And these cassettes have never been heard before. And it was answer phone messages that Dennis Mahan had left Carol. And were they labeled? Um I can't remember they were labeled or not. And it's an important question in a sense, because if not, it adds a lot of journalism that you have to say, who are these people that are talking? Yeah, Um, but also a lot of it was Carol's undercover surveillance work. Uh, So you you were hearing Carol, none of this stuff has ever come out before. Uh, Like the wire she's wearing. Yeah, the wire. We got hold of all of that stuff, or, or at least a big chunk of it. We also managed to get hold of Court tapes, and when she was in court for a bombing charge, again, that's never been heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles just sweet talked the stenographer from the time who like dug up some cassettes that she'd made for her personal use. So, so the debutante is full of archival. Could st- you have made it without this stuff? Uh, probably no, probably not. So, yeah. so Miles did like an incredibly good job, I'd say. Yeah, um, I don't think we could have. And again, I didn't realize how what a scoop getting hold of her diary was. Uh, it, it just it just didn't dawn on me until just a couple of weeks ago, actually, when people were like, no, no, this diary's like nowhere. But you have a contract to do a podcast. I mean, it, it, did, yeah. did
1: was that after you'd done all this spade work? or No, before. So it, it's possible that it might be just you talking quite a bit without all this incredible evidence and audio.
2: There's always that danger. Yeah, You know, There's yeah. always that danger. You, you have to... You know, for people like us, what you, you know, because you don't want to solve it all before you go on the journey. You sure. want it to unfold while you're on the journey. Yeah. So yeah, there's always a danger. Like if, it, um, but thank God we did get that stuff.
1: And I think that's, by the way, one of the things that neither of us have mentioned about not maybe why I don't, probably you too, don't like ideological ideological journalism because there's no journey you know exactly
2: what you're going to get you know exactly what you're trying to find and you're working backwards from it 100 that that's why i don't love identity politics journalism either so yeah. much because i mean i like it sometimes but my problem with it isn't ideological it's you you know what the story is going to be yeah. yeah like like this st- you, you don't yeah. need to hear the thing before you know the story yeah and you want to be surprised I love those This American Life stories where you just don't know what – the twists and turns. You don't know what's going to happen. It's yeah. about the nuances of being a human. And, you know, those are the stories that I love to make and are the stories that I love to listen to. I started wondering if this, this American Life that I listened to
1: as a result of listening to your podcast um, would have been made today. Kind of interesting because when I knew you were – when I saw that you were doing this about this subject, I thought of the old Clinton conspiracy people and – Ambrose Evans Pritchard and people talking about Eloin, Eloin, Elomin. I don't even know how to pronounce at this point. Elohim, Elohim city. uh, That you know that was really percolating in that world, and I'm not even quite sure the ideological reasons for why. Because it doesn't. It's like I guess an attack on Janet Reno and Clinton, but it's like an attack on Nazis. I don't know. But I started going through a lot of this old stuff because it's when I started getting interested in politics. So I had a professor who canter to the narrative of like all your professors were left-wing. I had a guy who was like um British professor and he was like weirdly right wing. And I wasn't at the time, but he used to give me copies of the American spectator. And this is true at, and, you know, the, this was a magazine that was deep, you know, neck deep in the fever swamps of anti-Clinton stuff. And so I got back to this stuff, and one of the most amazing things that I found was in the Vince Foster material, The a, a, a aide to the Clintons, worked in the Clinton White House, um, turned up dead in a park in D.C., having committed suicide, and... In the extreme end, people say, oh, Hillary murdered. They were having an affair. And he was the first of many, yes, like many. 30, Ron Brown, they yeah. brought the plane down. It's crazy, crazy stuff. But it went mainstream. Uh, the guy who owns Newsmax, Chris Ruddy, wrote a book about this. Published by a mainstream publisher, by the way. And so the New York Times tasked a journalist who is now kind of... Forgotten about, but he's just sort of an anti-Zionist journalist now named Philip Weiss uh-huh. uh, to do a story on them. And he wrote a book, he wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine called The Clinton Crazies. I said, this is pretty interesting. Philip Weiss doing this thing in 94, 95, maybe 96. Clinton Crazies, I'm reading it. Um, I start Googling and this thing pops up in the un- the unbelievable, unbelievably useful C-SPAN archive. And it's a gathering of right-wing activist Reed Irvine from, you know, the you know, anti-Clinton media group et cetera. And they're all up there talking about it and one of them is uh, Philip Weiss. And then I keep clicking and then there's a This American Life piece, maybe from the first or second season, in which it's an interview with Philip Weiss talking about what happens when you're a mainstream person covering crazy people and then you start believing what they're telling you. And it's really interesting. And, his, you know, it's like, I thought it was just going to be, there's an attack on these crazy people. It's like, you know, Act One, Philip Ice. So, Philip Ice gets these, you know, and it's just like the classic. is do that well. You know? <laughs> it's one way of recording a podcast in the 90s. It was that. And he is like, look, I don't think all this stuff they say happens, but something's not right here. And I found that so fascinating. But like, I wondered, would anyone who's covering this stuff today risk their reputation because I don't think this American life would do. Oh, this is interesting. You believe you come to some agreement with the crazies. Mm. I don't think that happens anymore. The crazies are dangerous. Yeah. the Crazies are what you just want to like glance at them, call them the names they deserve to be called and never speak to them again. I just thought it was really interesting that that, that I didn't know that he was, (laughs) he was like kind of a Vince Foster guy at one
2: point. But yeah. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. I think that's, that, that's, Sounds like a fascinating this yeah. life story. So let's, I mean, I'm going to keep you forever. Keeping
1: you for a long time. Um, what's going on now? We, we, you've got 35 books in contract. Yeah. You're doing uh, Things Fell Apart, season two. Yeah. Any hints on the kind of direction? I mean, you've given a little bit, but is
2: it, how deep are you into it? Uh, we're, about, we're kind of three or four episodes in, so we're doing well. Completed episodes? Pretty much, although we've got a long time left, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if we go back to some of the episodes that we think are completed and better them in the coming months. And the premise of it initially was what we've uh, talked to people about this in the past, but
1: remind uh, everyone what that it's was.
2: origin stories from from the from the history of the culture wars, which I know sounds a little boring, but it's really not boring, it's n- not at all. Yeah, these origin stories are. Unbelievable. And what I really like, and this is a great thing about working for the BBC, is
0: that
2: they... um, You don't need to... They trust that the listeners, because there's a lot of pretty obscure stuff on the BBC. Oh my God. Yeah. I listened to Melvin Bragg. Right. And it's like, you so know. compared to Melvin Bragg, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like yeah, a page turner. Yeah. So, this is
1: about 13th century bathroom
2: etiquette. And it's like, what is he talking about? It's I know. Bizarre. Right? So, I'm, so the way that manifests itself wonderfully with yeah. m- me and the BBC and things fell apart is that we start the stories for, for Things Fell Apart. You, see, you have no idea where the story's going. Like one of the episodes is... And about, you don't have to dumb it down. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's about a kid in uh, Switzerland whose dad is... Uh, this is in season one. There's a kid in Switzerland whose dad is like a Christian preacher. The kid wants to be a filmmaker. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so he wants to get like a Hollywood showreel together. So he convinces his dad to do this documentary. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the documentary's going to be about abortion. And his dad's like, you know, but we're evangelicals. We don't care, you know, we don't care about abortion. Yeah. Now, that's for the Catholics. We're pro-life. We're pro-choice. And the kids go, No, I want to get a really good showreel together for Hollywood. And yeah. that's how evangelicals get interested in the in yeah. anti-abortion. So um, and we, but we just follow, and the same thing's happening in season two. Like, I won't give anything away, but but um one of the episodes that we've done in season two. The origin story is just this chance meeting at a boat club, the bar, the bartender, and a customer, and they have this chance conversation in the early two thousands, and that chance conversation, you know, twenty years later, changes the world. Yeah. So, so I'm carrying on that that thing of like, you know, you're just following the story, and you have no idea where it's going. And it's a good way to sell it. Yeah. I, mean, I want to hear that. Um, and, yeah, so we're doing another eight episodes there 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 is something unifying them, but I don't know if I want to give that away. no just, no, just, you yeah. don't have to, but uh-huh. let me ask you one want maybe
1: this' will be the final question because I think this is an eye rolling question this is what What people like us, we hear this question, and we're like, oh, this one again, the eye roll. And over time, I've realized that it's not an eye roll question at all. It's a totally honest question from people, and they want to know. And they just don't live in your world, and they, you know, work in totally different industries. And they hear about this stuff. The chance meeting at a boat boathouse, it's the simplest question, which I find really interesting to respond to myself, is where does this stuff come from? Right. It's actually an interesting
2: question. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too. And in fact, I'm going to do, when I'm next in Britain, I'm going to do some workshops, like how to write narrative nonfiction. Yeah. And I think a huge chunk of the workshop is going to be trying to answer that question like where do you find these stories uh and for me a lot of them come from like the most boring places uh obscure psychology papers from the 1960s that you're just casually reading yeah yeah yeah. Uh, well not so much casually reading like you you know you've got a vague vague thematic idea and then you're just honing in and 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 quite often it's like really boring audiobooks that i'll just go for a big hike upstate and listen to like a 10-hour audiobook yeah and there's like a part of your brain that's just waiting for the unex- for the something unexpected to, yeah. to happen it's like, oh didn't expect that yeah and uh and then that can be the start of the rabbit hole and then you could just go down a rabbit hole, yeah, so it's rabbit holes but the the little glimmer of where the rabbit hole is is often in really boring places, yeah there are, it's often like a little little emerald in a dull dull room yeah and you just have to have the part of your brain that's like huh Mm -hmm. didn't expect that
0: yeah
2: Uh, so for instance okay so the the abortion story about the father and the son yeah that came from i was reading a very good book about the culture wars called oh god what's it called um (laughs) um uh, I'm gonna look it up you can you
1: can tell can... me and I'll
2: I'll pop it in <laughs> I, I wanna okay will you pop it in you, want, yeah. you wanna you
1: wanna give the person credit who yeah 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 yeah, yeah. book about culture war <laughs> um, really? this is the research uh, process people John actually searches <laughs> book about culture war which um, uh, would would give you probably a lot
2: of answers I don't imagine I think but it's a popular book yeah it was really good and I can't I can't, remember, I can't find... Oh, here we go. Hang on a sec. I'm about to find it. Yeah. Um, it is called A War for the Soul of America by Andrew Hartman, written in 2015. Okay. So I was, I was listening to the audiobook of that yeah. or, or reading the Kindle. I can't remember. Yeah. And there was something about um, an art historian... An evangelical Christian art historian. Yeah, and just the words "art historian" in a book about the culture wars. Yeah, is like thought, okay, oh. interesting. Yeah. yeah, and that led me to that story yeah. about the kid and the film, yeah. and yeah, so it was just the words "art historian" that, yeah. that did it. I It's funny you said to me earlier.
1: How did you know what Andreas Strassmeier's brother did? Well, it's because I very I find it very hard to get through things because. Um, you know, books, films, articles, the rest of it, because it's not a skill that you have to have. It's not a skill. It's an instinct, and the instinct is curiosity. And I know everybody in front of me in that shot in the film. I don't know who that guy in the back is, though, and I want to know who that is, always. Right. I, there was a point at which my ex <laughs> was like, you literally spend 40% of the film on IMDb. And I'm like, yeah, but I find out really weird things. Right. And like, this guy is actually the cousin of that guy. And this is how it all works. And it's not a conspiracy theory putting together the, a yeah. <laughs> you know, beautiful mind thing, but I have found some wild stories that way of just coming up with like, you know, this person down, this person down, this person. And I'll give like, you one. I, t- I talked about it on the, on the, um, uh, podcast. And this was a little, uh, better known but it was about the guy who wrote the novel, The Outlaw, Josie Wales. Okay. Um, who it turned out because, again, I talked to my 12-year-old daughter about this. I said, think about films these days of all the narrative devices you can't use anymore because of cell phones. You can't get stuck in the woods and blah, blah, blah. You have to have some other thing like there's no coverage here and my battery's dead. You know, you can't just yeah. be out there. And you used to be able to get, a lot of, get away with a lot of things like the guy who wrote Outlaw, Josie Wales who was also the man who wrote the Segregation Now, Segregation Forever speech uh, and was a white supremacist and then, you know, transformed himself. um, Very well-known white supremacist and used to write for this uh, paper called The Southerner and then uh, changed into this person uh, who wrote this outlaw Josie Wales book and a few others that got optioned. He was an alcoholic. He was a pain in the ass around Hollywood. And then the next act of his life, he wrote an enormously successful book in the 1970s, um, f- you know, as a Native American, Little Feather, something Little Feather, which sold millions of copies. And it was the same white supremacist who cha- And it was only wow. because I was watching this film that I clicked and clicked and clicked. And I was like, wait a second, I, I, wait, that's not the same guy. And then you've seen a li- few people have written about it, but not a lot. It's not going to come across your radar. But that's a story that's, Known by some people, I mean, I told this to a room of guys in this podcast and listeners, and most people had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. Um, That is how, it's not as if someone is slipping a manila envelope under your door that has the secrets and you... And take that little string off of it.
2: Yeah, that almost never happens. Never happens. And in fact, you know, over the years, when somebody says to me, "I've got like the most incredible story crazy. for you," yeah. yeah, it's always I am being spied on yeah. by the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always um, insane. It's always bullshit. MK Ultra. Yeah,
1: it's uh, MK Ultra, which I was surprised to find it was a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Which because I was like, every crazy person is constantly referencing MK Ultra, but it is was actually a thing. But uh, yeah. you know, the, just I don't think it had the resources to yeah. spy. Quite as many people who believe
2: that they were being spied on.
1: Well, Joe Rogan asked you if if do you believe in a conspiracy theory. You
2: investigated this, and you kind of don't believe this one now, right? No, I, yeah, I think um, hopefully people will have heard the whole thing by the time we get to this. Yeah, part. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't believe this one anymore. Yeah, I don't. I, I think uh, I think plausible. I mean, there's there's elements to the story that are plausible. Yeah. I, I think John Doe too could be real. Yeah. You know there were plausible sightings of McVeigh with an olive-skinned man. That, that yes. could be real. Yeah, um, it's possible that Andy Straussma isn't telling the full truth. Yeah, um, but I do think that it, that Carol didn't give information to the government before the bombing that could have stopped the bombing. Uh, and I, I think the reason why people think that is because Carol continually changed her story and that's played with people's memories. And there's like a
1: little memory trick when you ask these two people. Yeah. You say that there's evidence
2: of this. Yeah, and I and I just don't think that there is. Yeah. Um, you know, Carol was a complicated person. She sometimes behaved heroically, sometimes behaved terribly, but she was a complicated, very complicated human being. By the way, what you said about kind of curiosity and looking for those little, yeah. you know, Jewels, and it just reminded me of when I was a kid. The thing that used to really annoy people about me <laughs> was uh, somebody would like tell an anecdote, and like they'd tell like the whole story and have a beginning and a middle and an end, and like everybody would like laugh and appreciate yeah. the anecdote, and then I'd always go, "And what happened after that?" It's <laughs> <laughs> really people. <laughs> <laughs> and the room dies and looks over yeah. at you like you know the story's that, finished
1: yeah I'm not, but i want to know yeah. what happened next but that's not and you know this is a story <laughs> that is it was finished you know 30 years ago but isn't finished now because you didn't you don't have because the story becomes you know from my perspective obviously you <laughs> you know what the story becomes but from my perspective this becomes less about you know, did we have forewarning about Oklahoma City and there was some bungle or some conspiracy that, that that allowed it to happen? And more that, who is this insane woman and is a kind of, you know, neo-Nazi zealig that doesn't have the normal background? And one of the most important data points for me, which is what we haven't mentioned, is uh, the Throbbing Gristle Genesis pr who died recently, by the way, Mm. who is a trans Mm. woman. um, And they did play in a Leibach way with like fascist imagery and stuff. But she's like this like kind of goth girl in high school and that path. And she also seems to be like a psychopath in some ways and a, a liar. And when you got that interview, the yes, but not the sit down, and you'd lined all this stuff up. What was, you were just like, I need to ask her about
2: what? What was the, what was the, 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 the opening salve? Well, it's, uh, when you, is it true that you joined Genesis Biologist? That was the thing that I really wanted to know about. That. Yeah. I mean, that's totally fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause she leaves, exactly. She's a goth in high school. But while her best friend, Laurie, was also a goth, but Laurie was into like... like the cure. cure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Cow was into throbbing gristle. Yes. And yes. psychic TV. Uh, and like, you just know, like, yeah. this is somebody who wants to... And then when she starts dating Dennis Mayhem, the craziest Nazi in America, it's like he's like the throbbing gristle of yes. 90s white supremacy. He's yeah. like, he's crazier than all the other... <laughs> how far can I go in this? How crazy can we get? Yeah, exactly. So that's something that was definitely guiding how she wanted to be as... She wanted to go to the extreme, yeah. Um, which again is a sort of interesting. Yeah, I mean, they would. It, what is this person now? How are
1: they living now? You found out where she is, but don't reveal that in the piece. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, can one have a normal life after you remove the Nazi tattoo? Yeah,
2: I wonder if if um... if
1: your name is Googled and everything that comes up is related to Timothy McVeigh.
2: Yeah, you know, she's also, by total coincidence, there's a Paramount TV Plus miniseries that's just come out about the aftermath of Waco. Yes. And there's a character playing Carol in it. Really? Yeah, yeah, just by complete coincidence. Like, you wait 30 years... I don't know if this is probably a phrase that doesn't happen in America, but in Britain, I was always using. you wait ages for one bus and then three come along at once. Yeah. You wait 30 years for one portrayal of cowhaw. And, hope to- and it's like right when you're doing yours. Yeah, this <laughs> one comes along too. So what I'm hoping is that people will watch the Waco thing yeah. and think, oh, I want to know the real story about this woman and then yeah. find the debutante. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not hoping our listeners uh, uh, subscribe to Audible to get this podcast. I'm demanding that you do, because if you made it this far without um, downloading this and listening to the whole thing you are an insane person um but go listen to it if you have it some of you just leave us on in the background so i get it because it'll make a lot more sense and this is kind of what i think of as maybe a director's commentary to a dvd which don't exist anymore <laughs> or a companion piece to one of um the more fascinating things that i've listened to in the past year for sure and i had uh many questions and you cannot answer these in six episodes but god do you weave a story and you do such a brilliant job of it and it is always a pleasure john and you are a beloved guest people love it this is your third time god yeah three you're right
2: it is a third porn time. things fall apart oh, and right. then this one now the deputy. well yeah. let there be many more. let there be many more the only downside is that every time i do your show it means i can't do blocks and reported because katie won't doesn't want to double up on guests you know how happy that makes me <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry, Katie. We love you.
2: But um yeah. She got mad
1: at something recent. What was the somebody recently? I I just turned like my co hosts were here, uh, where she was mad that uh we got somebody before her and she was like, Can't do it.
2: Can't yeah. do it. And it was it was hilarious. So I, it was the it was the uh, Mihama airmail guy. Yes, it was Jamie kerchik Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: That's
2: what it was. <laughs> That's really funny.
1: And yeah because a friend of mine. Uh, sent me a message and said, You know, Katie Herzog is on the, uh, the podcast uh, saying fuck you, Moynihan, uh, very loud. And I was like, I don't, what did I do? I didn't, I, I love Katie. What happened? And it was like, You just interviewed Jamie. So, beat you again, Katie. Sorry. Uh, go ahead and get the podcast. Uh, we'll be back here with regular episodes. And um, thank you, John Ronson. Michael, it was a pleasure as always. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Vietnam brûle et moi je hurle ma mao. Johnson rigole
0: et moi je vole ma mao. Le napalm coule et moi je roule ma mao. Les villes crèvent et moi je rêve ma Mao. Les putains crient et moi je ris ma mao. Le riz est fou et moi je joue ma
2: L'impérialisme dicte partout sa loi La révolution
1: n'est pas un dîner
2: La bomba est un tigre
0: en papier